Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The staggering scale of London's golf belt revealed. A redevelopment row erupts next to Erno Goldfinger's iconic Trellick Tower. A fortnight of Extinction Rebellion climate protests target the city. And Croydon Council abandons its Westfield dream after a decade of disputes. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Robin Hutchinson. Robin is a community activist and director of the Community Brain. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Merlin. It's an absolute delight to be with you. Our first story this week is all to do with shocking new research carried out by the architect Russell Curtis of RCKA and Rupesh Vasani of the London Community Land Trust. Frustrated by the inaccessibility of much of London's open space, they have investigated the well-trimmed contours of the capital's golf courses. The report reveals the combined area of London's 94 golf courses is extraordinary. Dubbed the Golf Belt, together the many courses take up over 4,000 hectares, more space than the whole of Brent. That's a London borough with a population of over 300,000 people. If the golf courses were a borough in their own right, they would be the 15th largest in the capital. So as Curtis and Vasani highlight, one third of the golf belt lies less than 800 metres from a town centre or a train station, or enjoys a public transport accessibility level of 3+. plus. This is something the Greater London Authority uses to rate the accessibility of land by public transport. 3 plus is pretty good. Many of the golf courses take up vast swathes of land just on their own. Enfield Golf Course, for example, could comfortably accommodate the 90,000 capacity Wembley Stadium or the XL Exhibition Centre between just two of its 18 holes. Much of the golf belt sits on privately owned land, but the research has cast a light on the surprising number of London's golf courses that are in fact owned by public bodies. Nearly half of all the courses in the city are publicly owned with the freehold of 43 held by either a London borough or another public entity. However, despite their enormous size, the courses are not producing significant revenues for their public owners. For example, the investigation revealed that the operators of the council-owned Enfield Golf Course only pay the borough £13,500 a year for the 39-hectare course, about the same as it costs to rent a two-bed flat in the area. 
The investigation also revealed the shocking statistic that the space needed for a single golfer could provide homes for at least 380 people, even at a modest density of 60 dwellings per hectare. Selective development on the accessible areas of London's public courses alone could deliver homes for over 100,000 people, leading many to ask whether it's time to rethink London's relationship with golf. So Robin, what's this all about? The study reveals the staggering scale of land designated to golf courses around London. The demographic of golfers tends to lead towards older, affluent men. Typically, three quarters of uh, members at golf courses tend to be men and over 80% are over 40 years old. That's compared to a median age of 35.6 years in London. For a pastime with such a niche clientele, is golf getting a disproportionate amount of land and could at least some of those 94 courses be put to a more socially productive use? When you put it, it would be the 15th largest borough in London. That is phenomenal. And it does beg a big question around, with the pressure that we do have on housing, actually, is there a time to evaluate the real benefits of some of these golf courses. I, for my sins, was a councillor uh, from 1986 to 1994. But one of the first meetings I went to was actually the renewal of a lease on a golf course um, in a very well-to-do area. And I was absolutely staggered when the valuer said the amount of money the local authority was going to receive, which was pitiful for the area of the land um, and actually the benefit to the club. So I do think there are some, you know, I mean, it, we have so many things that we need to prod at and question. And I think it's really good to think, because the end of it will be, as I was taught and brought up, if an argument is, is if an idea is good, it can withstand any amount of argument. And I think maybe now is the time to discuss something like this. Because you, you know, it, they are, they tend not to be socially diverse. They tend to be aimed at a particular, uh, not exclusively, but a particular type of person. And despite the best efforts of um, golf to try and open the doors to younger players, um, and yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really, really good report. It's certainly interesting, you know, they're calling it the golf belt, and obviously that's an allusion to the green belt. And obviously the green belt is a kind of, we have an emotional attachment to it. A lot of us, in our imagination, if we haven't spent a lot of time exploring it, probably think of it as like a giant Richmond Park going all the way around London. That's what it sounds like, a green belt. Um, but in reality, you know, yeah, there's a lot of fenced off uh, playing fields. Uh, there's a lot of uh, golf courses where it's not really clear if you're allowed to walk across it. Uh, although often you are, but it's not clear. I mean, I looked at some of these golf courses. I, I checked what, you know, what would it cost as a non-member to play around. It's like fifty quid, you know, just for a fifteen-minute slot, which is quite a lot of quite a lot, especially if you know, if you don't have any of the equipment or you've never done it before. Um, and then you rather think, well, you know, with a canny enough architect, could you get a few hobbit houses in there and sort of turn them into buns? Maybe people can live alongside the golfers uh, happily ever after. <laughs> I mean, the point about what it says about our metropolitan open land and the green belt, I think, is, again, fascinating because we, I think, those of us who work in areas where we come up against it, 
your heart absolutely sings to the concept of the green belt, this lung that sits around London. And of course, as you say, actually a lot of it when you examine it is inaccessible and it's not even particularly biodiverse either. Um, you know, a lot of, I, we've just done a study on green spaces and playing fields in particular do not benefit in the way that you automatically assume they do. And actually when you'd realise how little just playing fields offer compared to the real richness of uh, wilderness and other green um, sites. It's a disturbing thing. I think the other bit, as we know, is that golf courses are uh, water... uh, uh, rich they take an enormous amount of water particularly around the greens to keep them um uh, playable so there's some really interesting environmental questions and the green belt and metropolitan open land and you know it should golf courses along with other elements should they be part of it is again another discussion that's really worth having because if we're not careful, we're ending up fighting to protect something that isn't giving the benefit that we believe in our hearts it should do and I think sensible debates and not a knee-jerk reaction. So, you know, dear God, now they're going to get rid of every golf course. That isn't the discussion. It's about we need to look at land in a different way and we need somehow to make an evaluation as to the benefits it brings. Well, I mean, certainly, like you know, as you were hinting there, London and the UK is, is in the midst of a massive housing crisis. I mean, just in the last week, we had a government commission report on uh, custom building and the author of the report said, um, if we don't sort this housing crisis, there will be major social divisions and there will be extremism potentially. I mean, that's pretty much already happening anyway, in some instances, sadly. But um, if you look at this study um, from Russell Curtis and Rupesh Vasani, they're saying that um, the development of some of these public golf courses could yield homes for more than 100,000 people. I mean, that's a really significant amount. Um, but what is the fact that basically we've got space for 100 to house 100,000 people and yet we're not doing it? What does that say about our priorities when it comes to land use? Like, why, why are we so kind of fixed on keeping some things in this eternal, non-changing state? even if it means 100,000 people and are not, are not having homes, potentially. In the new COVID world as we are now, uh, my wife and I took a trip up to London and looked at all the developments on the way in around uh, Battersea, etc. And you look there that we are building empty flats, basically, aren't we? You know, what we're looking at is investment um, and things... And, and it's terrifying that actually the millions that are being ploughed into effectively pension fund security for overseas money etc so i don't think it's a straightforward to go we've got golf courses we could do three would give us a hundred thousand when actually our entire system is built and based around a lack of social housing because it's driven by profit but there are still pockets of brownfield development and poor development that you know it isn't one or the other it needs to be all, but I think your fundamental question is how seriously we're taking social housing and the need for it. And the answer is we're not taking it seriously really at all. And the state of local authority finance means that those organisations that were effectively established to provide it are hamstrung in what they can do. So they're always entering into partnerships. And those partnerships tend to be led by organisations that have a much finer focus on how to turn profit than perhaps how to turn people's lives. 
And, and just quickly, obviously, you heard my Hobbit house idea. Um, if, if this land, if it was that we found that golf courses were the thing to build on, yeah, what, what would you like to see? What, what, what do you think could work on these spaces? Well, I mean, potentially, the idea would be, I would hope, how can we settle people into an environment with the minimum damage that actually one would be looking at how do we make sensible density in a green environment that makes the green environment work harder and makes people's relationship with that space more positive so that actually they become custodians and guardians not just of the walls within the sit but actually the space to which they relate um and again, it's one of the things that one sadly sees with a lot of development, that actually the public space, inverted commas, is very neglected because there's a no sense of ownership there. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month. And Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our next story is all to do with the ongoing row surrounding a redevelopment project next to Notting Hill's landmark Trellick Tower, which has ignited debate on Twitter. The Cheltenham estate that includes the Erno Goldfinger design brutalist icon sits in the London borough of Kensington and Chelsea and is subject to redevelopment plans by the leading architects Howarth Tompkins. In 2008, the council, despite huge protests from local people and architectural conservation groups, demolished the Edenham residential care home that formed part of Goldfinger's world-renowned social housing project. Currently in consultation, the new plans include the total demolition of a garage block and the famous Trellick Tower street art wall known as the Graffiti Hall of Fame. Uh, These would be replaced by new workspace, a row of two-storey single-aspect houses, a residential block of six storeys and another of 14 storeys. The project is slated to deliver 110 new homes, 50% of which will be privately rented, leaving the remaining half a mix of intermediate and social rented tenure. Um, That equates to 56 private homes, 10 intermediate and 44 for social rent. Proposed development goes against the council's own supplementary planning document uh, for this bit of land. Uh, It was put together by the council in dialogue with community representatives six years ago. Um, This planning guidance document stipulated that any new buildings should be between four and six storeys. So obviously that's not 14 storeys that's proposed. Uh, And also any new development there should not require further demolition of existing structures. Um, So further worries have surfaced on Twitter as the council has been accused by campaigners of using what they say are misleading images to garner support for the redevelopment project. For example, one image used by Kensington and Chelsea in their consultation process appears to only show the ground floor of the proposed buildings, um, which obviously doesn't give the reflection of the mooted 14-storey tower. Um, So, Robin, what can you tell us about Trellick Tower? And why do you think Erno Goldfinger's housing schemes, which also include the Balfron Tower in East London, uh, have become cherished by Londoners and designers around the world? Iconic buildings 
fascinate. And Trellick Tower is one of those. I think the frustration again here, and I think we're going to find a common theme across all stories, which is where truly is the voice of the community in this? Because why these buildings work and take on this status is because an affection is given to them and what they stand for. And that's a really dangerous thing to play with. And by eating it away, it's almost as though people believe you're not going to hurt by just nibbling around the edges at these things. But actually, it's a bit of a father forgive them for they know not what they do. Every time it is lessening it. And it just feels naively and without enough real knowledge that there's danger here that if you've done community consultation six years ago that arrives with a feeling of this we can tolerate, this we can, and then you go against that, then you're going to have a lot of people who are angry and are disappointed and will reach for the prejudices that are coming up more and more about the way in which politicians and government and local authority behave, which is they will do one thing when it suits them and nothing when it suits somebody else. So, in a way, the tower is probably... It's symbolic as well as real, because it's another... It's a it's another battle, and as somebody once said, there's no such thing as regeneration. It's just moving people. Um, you know, in the end of it, is this just another moment where a community will find itself shifted? And I, you know, having worked in worked with people and communities and seen where success happens, it's really about people's relationship to the place in which they live, their investment in it, their comfort, the confidence that it brings, the liberation, the opportunity. And you can't just pick that up and put it somewhere. It's very interesting, your emphasis on you know, community there, because obviously this is a very unique community within London. We know that Trellick Tower is just a stone's throw uh, from Grenfell Tower, where there was the fire. It's now the subject of an ongoing inquiry i mean obviously what's proposed at trellick tower is very different it's it's some new buildings next to the tower um and it's some demolition of of parts of the estate uh whereas grenfell was um before the fire it had been the subject of a refurbishment project with cladding put onto it um but then when we think about the sort of community and potentially some of the community response and what's going on i mean are there actually some parallels here and is the sort of question of how you have lessons being learned when it comes to community and how the community of North Kensington is is such an important thing to to be on have on your side if you're trying to do anything uh, changes to the, the area. I would suggest that in any situation you are you should be working your hardest to get the majority of the community on your side, um, and that in areas of high sensitivity you should be making ex yeah if it is possible you should be making extra effort all the time but actually in an area of sensitivity you should be really aware of the subcurrents and fears um you know i think grenfell is still so real and painful that it's almost difficult to talk about that as parallel to anything because that should be the marker in the ground of change and I don't think we're feeling that. But, you know, I mean, 
I think anybody who lived through the fallout of that will carry it with them, I hope, as a different way of thinking and that you cannot ignore quality of design and quality of life and opportunity for people just because they happen to have the misfortune to be put in bad place. Our third story is all to do with Extinction Rebellion's Impossible Rebellion, which has been covered by The Guardian, The Independent, uh, Channel 4 News, BBC News, all kinds of London media. Uh, The climate activist group XR is targeting the City of London for two weeks of protests aimed at highlighting the significant role played by the financial industry in the climate crisis. So according to the group, around 15% of global carbon emissions can be accounted for by businesses listed on the London Stock Exchange or financed from the UK. Um, So Extinction Rebellion, they're saying that if London's financial markets were a country, they would actually equate to being the world's ninth largest emitter of carbon. The first big headline-grabbing intervention was a big giant pink table in Covent Garden, which was uh, said to be a place for crisis talks with the government and industry. I think at the time of recording, the table is somewhat besieged. I think the protesters are still holding out. Um, But anyway, Robin, perhaps you could tell us a bit about what is Extinction Rebellion and why is it such a remarkable protest movement compared to everything that's come before it? I think it's brilliant. It's uncomfortable. It causes some people problems, but it's probably exactly what we need, which is activists bringing our attention to a cause and a concern that we've neglected for far too long. I think that they are geniuses in the way in which they go about it. I think their ideas are superb in making very visual statements to ask us questions and I particularly love the fact that when you see them interviewed on the occasions that they get interviewed there is a brilliantly diverse cross-section of people involved in it so they have done that wonderful thing of making a cause feel relevant to a really wide group of people. I think it was 20 years ago I chaired an international conference on the climate crisis. Now, I have to say, I was as baffled as you would be, as why would anybody pick you to do that, Robin? And the answer is still, I've no idea. But what it did do was allow me in the briefing to go and meet some of the world's experts. And 20-odd years ago they were saying, this is so real that unless we declare war on it, we're going to do nothing, that actually governments and politicians have to be brave enough to say this is an issue that counters all other issues and we have to fight it as if it were an enemy. And it's not a popular slogan for politicians, so we've kept that out of the way. But what Extinction Rebellion are doing is that wonderful but desperately sad reminder that unless we do genuinely do something about this, you know, during COVID, I was kind of saying to people, I see a boat and at one end there's a fire 
and that's COVID. And everybody's using all their efforts to put that fire out. And there's one person at the other end of the boat who's pointing at an enormous hole in the boat that's sinking it. And that if we're not careful, we will put a fire out and go under doing it. Part of the strength of XR is its ability to harness the collective power of ordinary people coming together often through visually impressive, choreographed group performances. I mean, it sounds a bit like Community Brain. Perhaps you could tell us about some of the similarities with your own organisation. Why are so many people getting on board with XR's participatory and expressive movement? And um, how have they achieved this feat? I think there's a depth in this that's the real magnet. And the way in which they then position it through their effects, their events, their visual delivery is helps fuel people's beliefs because it's clever. They are taking an extraordinarily difficult subject and making it accessible visually and in message. And that is drawing a wide audience of people who want to be able to say, I believe this too. You know, it, we, you need places to rally. And too many issues have been lost because there hasn't been that. Well, where do I take my anger? Where do I take my hurt? Where do I take my concern? Where do I take my pain? And Extinction Rebellion, I think, are making those spaces. Our final story this week was covered by the AJ. It's all to do with news that Croydon Council is scrapping its plans for a new Westfield shopping centre. Leonard Design Architects' £1.4 billion scheme to redevelop the Whitgift shopping mall uh, was axed after it was deemed no longer, quote, appropriate or sustainable uh, after being in the pipeline for more than a decade. Uh, The post-Covid vision for the town centre report said the council would work with the site owner, the Croydon Partnership, it's a 50-50 joint venture between Hammerson and Unibel Radamco Westfield, on a new approach to regenerating the retail centre. The Westfield scheme, which would have been the third in London, has been subject to delays and revisions for over the years, not helped by huge shifts in UK retail. Allies and Morrison's original master plan was approved in 2014, but was later revised to include housing alongside the shopping mall. Uh, Leonard Design Architect's subsequent plan, with input from Hawkins Brown, featured nearly 1,000 homes in five tower blocks and was given the green light by London Mayor Sadiq Khan in 2018. The cancellation of the scheme will have knock-on effects for the council, which effectively declared itself bankrupt last year. Croydon admits its growth zone programme, uh, set to deliver £520 million worth of infrastructure in the town centre, will be, quote, considerably reduced. Croydon Council has since recruited architectural practice We Made That to complete a destination retail research study, uh, but the results from this have yet to be published. So, Robin, perhaps you could tell us a bit about Croydon. Um, you know, would a new shopping centre have been such a great thing for the area? And what does this uh, latest turn of events mean for the local community in that very special town? You know, those of us who've been engaged in this sort of world for a while have been saying for many years that that vision of the large shopping mall, the high street as just a place of commerce, 
it's a losing game and actually we've got to look for much further into the experiment experiential the sense of place why people would go there over and beyond purely purchase so these massive cathedrals to consumerism um felt like dinosaurs for a fair old while and this one uh, you know is potentially the sound of the extinction of that thinking but of course one can never guarantee it because there will be people who will think it's just a matter of refreshing it. Um, I think it's great they've brought people in to come and think around it, um, but destination retail, you know, I would say is actually quite a short-sighted thing. Robin, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The Lundown this week. Um, where can our listeners keep up to speed on all the great things you're working on? Uh, where can they read your socials? Where should they go? So on Twitter, I think we're the Community Brain or just Community Brain. Same on Instagram. And our website is thecommunitybrain.org. And we'd be delighted if people uh, would like to get involved. And you know, what we talk about is we need to create playgrounds for adults, spaces where people can rediscover passions and hope. And we are increasingly of the mind that we need to now make circuses as well. We need to bring some sharp colours into people's lives and give them the confidence and belief that they can make the difference. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank, thank you for being on the show and look forward to featuring you again in the future. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.